All right. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm happier now because I have a clean shirt. It's the little things, right? I'm, 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 am I satisfied? Well, it's an awfully strong term. Um, for those of you who are new with us, this is Allison Rickman. She's our director of ministry here at Grace, and she has the unenviable task of sifting through all of your questions in real time and coming up with the best ones. Or not the best ones, just you're good. you've all got good questions, and we're going to do our best to answer as many as we can before the night is out. But um, here we go. You ready? Uh, The first one. uh, Does agreeing Christianity has more resources for happiness, satisfaction, hope, etc. discount that it may have been designed by man to have more of those attributes than competing beliefs? Oh, good question. Read it again. Does agreeing Christianity has more resources for happiness, satisfaction, hope, etc. discount that it may have been designed by man to have more of those attributes than competing beliefs? Hmm. Anything is possible. Any faith tradition that anyone holds could be a remarkable product of a great deal of sociological forces and historical forces that came to construct certain ideas or stories to make sense of the world and um, depending on the effectiveness of that tradition, uh, having explanatory power for our condition or speaking to our deepest desires, uh, you know, how well or how poorly they did um, through their own uh, selection process, some died away and some remained. And so if you want to skew it that way, you could. The question is, uh, why is it that in, within this one tradition, has it uh, connected with um, the number of people that it has and speaks to our condition in a way that those across the socioeconomic and historical spectrum have all resonated with its, with its claims? Um, can anything have been constructed by humanity? Sure. I think, as I've said to this community before. Sometimes you have to have coffee with your inner atheist just to kind of, you know, every once in a while just imagine what if, just so that you're trying to, 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 to kind of uh, brace yourself with w- what, what leaves you to contend or to hold uh, to the truth to which you have given yourself and, and your allegiance and, and your worship. I think that's an appropriate kind of uh, mental exercise if you're willing to go there. I suppose, um, again, Dr. Keller in this talk was not out to make a a definitive case for the credibility of Christianity so much as he was trying to acknowledge that that which it propounds and that which it offers those to whom would be in submission to it, that those things that it offers would seem to resonate very deeply with some of the deepest concerns that everybody in this room has, regardless of whether you have a religious faith or not. Everybody longs for happiness. And as he surveyed the, uh, the number of responses and, and perspectives on that matter, um, uh, Christianity offers the, the humble response that, yes, that kind of happiness does exist. It's just not to be found in anything that we might create or construct or, or identify on our own. And, and that the one thing, perhaps, that is best equipped uh, to allow us to have a sustained form of, of mirth or happiness is, is to believe that there is 
one who is responsible for all things, and that one does not stand aloof or, or um, disinterested in our condition, but has entered into it and has met us in our suffering and who knows what it is to suffer. And therefore, it is a remarkable convergence in the same way that the entire universe is a remarkable convergence of a set of principles and physical laws that allow us even to be breathing at this moment. It is a remarkable, it's not a proof for anything, but it certainly is a remarkable set of convergences. I think what Christianity offers in the way of speaking to our own happiness and to our own suffering and to our own meaning, to our own identity, is at least a very compelling argument for its veracity. No proof, but rather compelling. And so um, let me stop there. And in case that danced around where you were really headed, then come talk to us after. Do you think it's possible for a non-Christian to live a happy and fulfilled life? In the same way that there are plenty of moral atheists in this world, I do not believe that one must necessarily um, explicitly subscribe to any transcendent idea of justice or truth in order to feel a certain moral obligation and to, to believe in justice or dignity and things like that. It's just that in, a, in an atheistic world, in a world in which there is no transcendence, you have a much harder time grounding why anybody else should subscribe to your belief about morality. As Keller will say in other talks that he's given, anybody can explain moral feelings, but you really can't explain why you have a moral obligation. Uh, a guy came and fixed the piano in my house once, and I, he once believed in God, and then he didn't anymore, and I kind of asked him to talk to me about what what accounted for his shift. And he said, I no longer needed anybody. I didn't need a God to tell me that I shouldn't be a bonehead. And I'll help him out with his language there. He, he didn't say that. I, I didn't need any God to tell me why I shouldn't be a bonehead to someone. And I said, you're right. You don't need a God to tell you why you shouldn't be a bonehead to somebody. But when you see somebody else being a bonehead to them, what right do you have to tell them to stop it? You, if you don't think there's any real reason to believe in transcendent justice, then you certainly can't insist that anybody subscribe to your view of morality. Getting back to the original question, can you be a happy person if you don't believe in God? Can you derive enjoyment from the simple things of this life? Can you take heart and great courage from great story? Sure. Can you find joy in relationship or love or intimacy and things like that? I, no quibble there. But at some point, everybody bumps into things that will force a certain choice on them as to what they really hope in. And like we talked about last week, not if you suffer, but when is certainly a moment that is a proving ground for the substance and the substantiveness of your belief. Can you be happy in good times? All sorts of ways. Everybody in this life, you're up in Asheville tonight, there's 40,000 ways to have a good time tonight. But what happens when it all falls apart? What happens when you hit a brick wall and that brick wall will not resist or you can't resist it and it doesn't seem like there's any way out of that? Can you retain a happy life if you have nothing other than your own circumstances to provide you that happiness? A belief in God offers an alternative and that alternative is you are beloved even if the rest of your world despises you. Is that a proof for the existence of God? Of course not. But at some point, if, if it is 
inherent to humanity to search for happiness, then there are some frameworks in which you might live that you will co- encounter a certain limitation as to how, whether or not that happiness will persist. It's not a proof, but it is a distinction to be made, and that's you know, kind of Keller said as each week. The value of a thing like this is that we're able to compare frameworks and to see how do they speak to our condition, their livability, do they work, and when we start finding ourselves borrowing from other traditions to kind of help make sense of our lives, then maybe we discover that the ground upon which we stand isn't quite as sturdy as we thought. Um, in the talk, uh, Tim Keller said, Christians should love God more than we love anyone, um, even our partners or spouses. As a non-religious person, how can I reconcile my spouse loving God even more than me? <laughs> you say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> you made vows. What's this about you loving God more than me? Um, I suppose there's a measure of tongue-in-cheek in the question, um, but I'll try to respect it with as much dignity as I can. Uh, I think from if, if I'm you, I would want my spouse to love God more than me for reasons that I think Keller even put, spoke of pretty, pretty clearly and explicitly in the, in the talk. If, if, if my spouse loves me more than God, then there's a certain level of expectation that she has for me about how I am to be for her. And when I fail her, it's devastating. Whereas if I fail her and yet she loves God, well, then her disappointment is tempered because I'm not her ultimate thing. And so uh, I know it's a, it's a hypothetical situation, and, I, and I'm speaking a little tongue-in-cheek myself. You, you would want your spouse to love God more than you uh, because then they won't demand of you more than what you could possibly give because you're a human, you're frail, uh, you're imperfect. Um, there's all sorts of things about you that you don't even live up to your own standard. You, you want somebody to have a, a, a further horizon to, that orients them to life. You, you want someone that has a, a greater love that, that cannot disappoint um, because you will. And if they think of you as their ultimate thing, then you've really set them up for a, a kind of disillusionment that, that you yourself wouldn't want. So, um, yes, uh, I, it's, uh, it sounds funny to say, to hear, Someone say that their spouse loves God more than their own spouse. But I think from that sort of philosophical kind of how you live kind of thing, it's actually preferable. Um, just by the way of the way relationships works and the kinds of expectations that we place upon one another and, and the way we all have to navigate disappointment and disillusionment, whatever relationship we're a part of. So how would someone know if they are loving God above all other things? Um, what would be the signs to look for? Sure. Um, again, to borrow from from the concepts that he raises, uh, the Stoic, the Buddhist alternative um, to perhaps a Christian paradigm or way of thinking about things is that they would detach themselves from it. They, uh, well, what does Yoda tell uh, Ray most recently in the most recent film? Uh, uh, detach yourself from anything that you would love, then you won't have to fear losing them, right? So you kind of keep your heart at an emotional arm's length distance, and then if they should disappoint you or when they are gone from you, well, then you're not so stuck with them that you feel like you've lost yourself. So that's the stoic alternative. In, within a Christian 
worldview, it would be like, love them for all they are. Love them for the gift that they are. And yet, you know that you love God more than anything else that you have, such that if when those things or those people disappoint you, or when they are lost to you, you yourself are not lost. You do not feel as if you have no meaning or hope or reason to live anymore. Um, you that that is that retains that remains. So, it's certainly a biblical category. This idea of idolatry, the idea where you value something more than its true worth, and all of us are susceptible to it. And there are theologians of of days past that says you and I, you know what we are? We're idol factories. There's all sorts of things that we think that are good, that we reasonably love, and yet we begin to think of them so much that they're so important to us that if we ever think that they are threatened to have been lost, we we became we become defiant and irascible and um and everything else falls apart. And it's in a moment like that where you discover, I think, well, it's the whole golem thing, the precious. It's the one thing he thought he couldn't live without. And, ident- and, and, and the irony of it is the one thing he thought he couldn't live without is the one thing that's killing him. And that's changing him from the inside. That's a picture of loving something greater than it's worth and therefore loving something greater than God. So you know, you know you're loving something else greater than God when that thing feels like you can't live without it. Um. In the talk, uh, Tim Keller mentioned uh, a C.S. Lewis uh, quote, if you find yourself longing for something in this world that this world can't meet, then we must belong to another world as a proof that God must exist to meet that need. Why can't we have longings that can never be met? I think we all do. I think every one of us has longings that will be unmet in this life. And you don't believe that when you're 15. But later you discover that. And that's not to be depressive or, oh, get ready. It's just a way of helping you to grapple with the reality that there's all sorts of wonderful things in this life, things we are properly give ourselves to and give thanks for whenever we can. And yet at at some point, everything has its limit, and that's okay. Um, Lewis's argument there is, is one more of sort of uh, uh, observable reflection. Uh, is it a proof for God's existence? I, I don't know that he would call it a proof. I would think he would consider it a, a rather uh, striking uh, suggestion or insinuation that there is something that we long for that's greater that in fact may point to its existence even if we can only see it with the eyes of faith. So I don't think he's, he's banking his whole case for belief in Christianity on that, on that observation that he perceives in himself and in others. But I, I do think he's allowing that experience that we all have, that there is something. Uh, just look at the, the numerous religious traditions in humanity. Um, if you want to just observe that or analyze that from a sociological perspective, it's clear that men and women are worship animals. We go for things, and when we go for them, we go for them the whole nine yards. So there are longings that we have um, that are unmet and that which we seek in what is beyond ourselves. So uh, uh, Lewis does a little bit of evocative, I think, 
um, argumentation there, uh, even though he's not resting his whole case for belief in Jesus on that truth. There are unmet longings in this life. And actually, I think that's, that was part of Augustine's uh, gift to us by way of his theologizing. Uh, sure, it's out there. Just please uh, cure, uh, uh, dispense with the idea that anything that you do here or seek here or find here is going to be that thing. You may feel like um, some of this is addressed in some in those answers, but there's a couple other questions about uh, does belief in God, even loving God, necessarily mean you will achieve happiness? Can't you have total belief and still be unhappy? There was a British poet of the can't remember if it's the 19th or the 18th century. His name was William Cooper. And his last name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. He was an author. He was a scholar. He was a poet. He was a Christian and a deeply depressed man who sought to take his life on multiple occasions. And uh, the irony of his story is that when you read his poetry and his hymns, they are so effusive with praise they, they, they speak of great longing for God's, um, God's presence, um, great confidence in his goodness, um, uh, great longing for his return, and yet he also speaks of great darkness in his life. And so, uh, whereas one might make the, the logical deduction, well, if, if God is the source of all things, and it's preferable to know that he exists and that he not only exists and that he knows me, but that he loves me in spite of myself, that's a great thing. One might make the, the logical leap, well, then everything is going to be fine now is a deduction that I don't think you can jump to, nor do I think necessarily that Christianity uh, suggests that you should. Now, I'm appealing to biographies and experiences of those whose faith um, did not waver, or you might just say they never sought to repudiate by way of argument or reason why they would stop believing, but surely their own existential struggle uh, suggested that they just could not cling to the hope that had held them up at different times like William Cooper's is and like countless others have been. Um, I, I do think uh, that um, believing in God and yet experiencing profound uh, seasons, um, if not a, a continual undercurrent of unhappiness, I don't think those are mutually exclusive categories. Um, I think Jesus was rather unequivocal at many times. In, in this world, you're going to have trouble, he said. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Um, peace I, I leave with you, peace I bring to you, not as the world gives, but as the way I give. And his peace is of a different character. It's based upon a set of different promises. And it's also based on a set of different outcomes for where history is headed. And those things are meant to sustain us and buoy us. But given the frailty of who we are, one reason I believe in Christianity is because I think it actually portrays the brokenness of who I am. And that brokenness in part, I think, is, is composed of my inability to remain uh, at this uh, consistent level of, uh, yeah, it's all good kind of mentality. There are moments where it's bleak. And so I, I don't think it, uh, that uh, to believe in God um, is meant to insinuate that this is, will be the continuation of, this will be the continual experience 
of uh, your life and your outlook and your optimism um, until you die. The next one, uh, I have trouble thinking of any joy in heaven that I would not eventually get bored of or any hell I wouldn't eventually grow numb to. Is satisfaction really something that won't be obscured by eternity? You all deserve to hear that one again. Go ahead. I have trouble of... I have trouble thinking of any joy in heaven that I would not eventually get bored of or any hell I wouldn't eventually grow numb to. Is satisfaction really something that won't be obscured by eternity? Not to put the other questions down, but what a wonderfully thoughtful question. And I I can only speak by way of speculation. I haven't been to heaven yet. Or hell, for that matter. When Paul says, at the end of his most beautiful ode to the nature of love, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish ways. Now I see, but through a glass darkly. But then... Face to face. And I will know him as surely as I am fully known. Maybe I'm a sap. Maybe I'm reading into it more than it's there. But I have a hard time imagining a kind of existence in which I am, which I know and know that I am fully known and loved anyway, that that would ever grow wearisome. I, it's probably the best I can do. The, the, I, the, the, uh, uh, the, the more traditional um, kind of fanciful characterizations of heaven of playing a harp on a cloud and wearing a robe and everybody walking around playing badminton. Look, um, I, those are guilty of a failure of imagination. Um, um, I would say, here, here's, a, here's maybe appealing to, to Lewis's sentiment earlier about if there's a, if there's a longing for which I have no um, uh, fulfillment of, then maybe I'm made for another world. I, I suppose that there is something in this life that uh, is an anticipatory of, of, of that future, and that is there is something that we deeply dig about being known. And maybe even so by the way in which we avoid seeking to be known because we're terrified of being known because maybe they'll really know who we are and they wouldn't like us. But what if there is a way and a kind of confidence in which not only are you known with absolute completeness and comprehensiveness and being adored. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Just imagine then that that would be of the one who's responsible for the existence of all things, including you. I don't think I would grow weary. And as far as hell, I'd rather focus on the alternative, even though I don't dismiss um, the thoughtfulness of that question. I think, um, I think I almost prefer not knowing as much about what it would be like. There's supposed to be some sort of marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, a feast to end all feasts, but most of all, it's being known. 
And I think that'll be good enough. Having not been there myself yet. There are a couple questions like this. Um, we're talking a lot about happiness and satisfaction. Can you clarify how those are similar or different from joy? Does joy automatically include satisfaction? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about how you, this morning, like, are they going to ask me how to define happiness or satisfaction there? And... Um, theologians of an earlier day when when tasked with the question what is god like a lot of the times they wouldn't seek to describe god as best they could they would actually try to it was by way of process of elimination they would get at a closer picture of who god is by ruling out what god is not like so we can say this god does not have a body according to what we find in scripture that jesus is the exception god jesus is the son of god he came in human form he retains that human form but god in its in his um, eternal nature has no body. So they would take things that they knew were not true of him, and then somehow they would help full, get more closer to a picture of who God was. I, I think maybe in the same way, what, how, do you, how do you get at a clear picture of what happiness is? Well, let's, let's, let's rule out what it's not. Uh, happiness is not uh, living with a, a really um, a recurrent sense of dread. We know that for sure, right? If I, if I have a, a continual sense of dread, then that means I'm not happy. Uh, if more of my life is full of irritability and unkindness and uncharity and a lack of love, then I think we could all conclude that that's not happiness either. Do we want to arrive at a very perfect definition of happiness? I don't know that it's necessary. Uh, a prevailing sense of goodness, of, of enjoyment, of laughter, of, of, of feeling free, of not being encumbered, of, of being available. I think all of those are those are ways of trying to achieve or arrive at a picture of what happiness is. Joy, again, you can go to Webster or you can go to other philosophers that try to define it. If I, if I look through a Christian lens, then I know that, uh, that there is, a, <clears throat> there is a, a ballast that one has that allows one to remain afloat even when the sea is tumultuous. And I think you might consider that as a metaphor for what joy is that there is something that sustains that allows you not to succumb you know, to the the bleakness or difficulty of your circumstances that's that's joy and in the moment you may be full of tears and there be maybe very little about your existence that you really find much enjoyment of and yet you're not sunk i think that's a closer picture maybe to what joy is and such that even even it says of Jesus, it is, it is for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. That for the joy of what would be the outcome of his obedience, that is what allowed him to stay in the fight, allowed him to stay in the garden and not give up on the, the mandate that had been given him and allowed him to stay and walk into suffering and, in, and, a, um, and an innocent death. Um, why? because of the joy of who his God is, who his Father is, and of what this moment would accomplish for all those who would walk in faith um, through him later. So I think uh, happiness is a, a general sense of optimism and mirth and happy, smiley, whatever. Joy, uh, joy is ballast. Uh, joy is what holds you together when everything else is trying to pull you apart. And uh, I, I, would, I would consider that a distinction. Is that a 
hard and fast rule, uh, according to the Oxford OED or, or, or elsewhere, I don't know. But that's how I see those two things as, as similar and yet really distinct. Um, next question. Isn't it very selfish if we love God to try and find satisfaction? I think I think that was I think that was Keller's argument there just towards the very end is that you don't go to God to be happy. You don't go to God to find satisfaction because then you've turned God into a means to your end. But that if you seek to know him, to understand him, to submit to him, to love him and to believe that he has loved you in Jesus, that what may very well come of that is a kind of satisfaction that accompanies you as a byproduct of that that belief. So it's, uh, it's not like you're on the quest for happiness and you think, well, this God is my ticket. Uh, God, like, if you just think about just the nature of God for a second, whether you believe in a God or not, if God is God, then there's really nothing, there, there's nothing greater around, even your own happiness. So to put happiness above God is, is to maybe kind of misunderstand who God is uh, in his very being. And so, um, yes, it would be uh, fundamentally probably distorted to uh, start believing in order to be happy. In fact, I kind of think it's, a, it's an interesting hypothetical question. I don't know that it would really, really hold out in a, in a, in a real, in a real um, existence or a, a philosophy of life. Um, uh, perhaps there were people that professed a certain faith in God because they thought that then life would all be smooth sailing and I think they would only think that because they really didn't read what Jesus had to say. Um, there's too much of this life that's full of darkness. There, there's too many ways in which towers can fall on you and, and too many ways in which um, despots uh, can mix uh, the, the blood of your own entrails with the sacrifices of others. There's just too many ways to buy it and too many ways to be mistreated. So, um, yes, I think it would be both uh, ill-fitting the nature of what Christianity is, but also... Uh, contrary to an understanding of who God is, if you think that, well, I'll be happy, I'll believe in God so that I can be happy or find satisfaction. Satisfaction is a byproduct of that. Um, There's some like this about maybe what people see or Christians feeling like they have to show happiness. I'm just read this question that um, fits with some others. It seems that Christian... This person says women in particular are expected to be happy, um, that they are judged not only based on their own happiness, but on the happiness and stability of the family. Is this a wider cultural phenomena, or is there some validity to the criticism that Christianity itself breeds a desire to produce an appearance of happiness? Not that. Great question, too. Any community you're a part of has a culture. And every culture has a certain set of values and expectations. And if you're part of that subculture, that culture exerts a pressure on you to live in alignment with that culture. And um, that's true of many cultures. It just sort of depends on what subculture you find yourself in. Now, Christianity is not a culture. It's certainly, uh, if anything, there's one uniqueness of Christianity is that it's found its way and, and taken root in any number of very disparate cultures. And yet people still worship the same Jesus even if they're in Indonesia or if they're in South America or if they're in Toledo. 
So any culture can exert a pressure in which you feel responsible to toe the party line, uh, keep up with its ideological purview. And, and again, that can apply to, to any grouping. So I wouldn't say that um, uh, to find oneself in a community that labels itself Christian is um, less susceptible to maybe um, in, unintentionally imposing upon you an expectation of how you should be. The, I, I would say um, the good news of the gospel is to, to borrow a phrase, to believe this, cheer up, you're really worse than you are. You're really worse than you know. Like if, if you'll just be honest with yourself, it's worse than you think, if you'll just be honest. And the sooner we all embrace that, the sooner we can kind of move on past all the pretense. And so another reason why I believe in Jesus is that he doesn't ask me to come to him with a set of, um, with a smiling face and a pedigree and a curriculum vitae and a whole sort of things that's supposed to impress him. He's not really impressed. He does his thing for me, not because of anything in me, but because of who he is and how he loves. If I believe that, I think that changes the way I think my outward face is to the world. Will there ever be moments in which I feel a certain compulsion to act a certain way, say a certain thing, quote a certain person? I, I, that will be a compulsion. Whether I follow that or not is not up. Is not, I do not lay that at the feet of my faith um, about why I might feel compelled to talk, talk in that way or, or act in that way. But yes, uh, I would say that any culture can, can unintentionally impose that. Um, I, uh, joy is meant for us in the gospel. Satisfaction and happiness can be a byproduct of the gospel. But I do think it's contrary to the nature of really belief in Christianity to walk around and to give off an impression of what you are not. Um, I might say on the flip side, though, I think neither is one meant to glory necessarily in the ways in which they're broken either. I don't think you necessarily have to like, oh yeah, you're bad. Oh, I'm worse. And then it kind of becomes like this. Oh, what's in that? (laughs) Why are you so interested in trying to prove to everybody that you're really awful? Like there's a flip side to everything. There's a a distorted way of you, you can put it on a pretense of how great you are, but you can also kind of equally embrace this really, you know, like, oh, 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 I have a story you won't believe. And then you're just kind of doing the same thing, but through a different avenue. So, uh, yes, I think, I think uh, a Christian culture can unwittingly um, encourage that kind of pretense. I don't think Jesus is at the heart of that impulse. I think it's something else. And I think the sooner uh, we admit our vulnerability... Um, uh, the sooner we can get on uh, to loving one another well um, so that uh, we walk in love and not on the basis of, uh, of pretense and hypocrisy. This will probably be last the one. last one. Um, what is one thing you uh, can think in your day, in your day-to-day life, that helps you remember what is to come and what, when things here seem like such a mess? So what is something that, looking ahead, that can give that hope um, for the future? I think it's a feature of our humanity that we always got to feel like we have something to look forward to. Like if you never have something to look forward to, you kind <coughs> of, you, 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 
I don't know if it's essential, but there's a tendency in you to kind of just sort of give up or become cynical, like hardened to the, the sensible disillusion man he references from C.S. Lewis's life. I think, I think there is something to uh, kind of setting your sights on something yet to come that allows you. I mean, sometimes I think looking forward to Christmas is actually better than Christmas itself. Um, and I'm sure psychologists can speak to that question. It's, it's the anticipation that's better than the reality. Only because when we get to the reality, we discover, man, my anticipation really fooled me. <laughs> um, the, the thing that we long for never really shows up. But as I'm reading in First Peter this morning, and he speaks of an inheritance that's kept in heaven that cannot fade, um, I can only imagine that with the eyes of faith. I can't screw up my heart to take relish that. I just sort of set those words before me and allow them to have the, the effect that they intend um, by what God's Spirit would have to do in that moment. But I would say that has to be on my furthest horizon, especially when people I know who are suffering or when I myself am suffering. I have to, I have to reach for that. Otherwise, I'll just say, we're done, it's over. This is not the life I thought it would be, and we move on. Or we, or we, we die and that's it. But uh, I, I have my high on that horizon. Um, I do think essential to living with happiness is gratitude. I think if you and I are not making a conscious effort to really <clears throat> step back and, and uh, as cliche as count your blessings, that's not cliche. It's a cliche because it stuck around, but it's a cliche because there's truth to it. So unless gratitude is a feature of our existence, almost as a form of discipline, uh, so is that we do not become so blinded, so, so blinkered and, and have such blinders on that, we, that all we see is uh, what is morose or um, hopeless around us. Uh, unless we take stock of all the things that we have a proper reason to give thanks for, um, then happiness, I think, will be more elusive to us. So that's one thing I try to do. It's one thing my wife has to remind me to do because she can look at me and go, well, aren't you being grumpy? And she's right. So it's a choice. Yeah. I really do appreciate the questions. And I, I know it's not, a, it's not an actual dialogue. I mean, you're asking and I'm answering, but we don't have this back and forth. And so if you want to stick around and keep talking, it's great. Um, I really welcome it. Um, I know these questions are genuinely off the cuff, but I do hope that there was some substance to them that you could use. Um, next week... Uh, Tim Keller is going to take up the topic of identity. And uh, if there's anything that people like to talk about these days, it's who I am. And until you accept me for who I am, you aren't treating me right. And so identity is a central to our existence. And so that's going to be the topic next week. Thank you for coming. If you did um, have any snacks around you, stuff, you could just pick up around yourself. That would be helpful to us. Otherwise, if you want to stick around and ask questions, we'll be here. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>